Hey everybody, hope you're all doing well. Thank you as always for listening to Talking That Trash. I'll be really quick off the top. This week we talk a lot about basketball in addition, of course, to giving some sizzling, scorching hot takes. As always, you know us. We talk a lot about basketball, a little bit about the NBA situation with what's going on in the bubble over in Orlando, but we mainly focus on Steve's 3x3 basketball career, what exactly FIBA 3x3 is, all that good stuff. It's always fun to talk about basketball with Steve. We always enjoy doing that with each other so i hope you guys enjoy might be changing things up slightly going forward but we can get to that over the next few weeks again we really appreciate everybody listening we appreciate the feedback so please keep it coming and enjoy today's episode here we go I was asking you this earlier. I feel like we should talk about this. So you have not seen Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze? Nope. Never have. Always heard a lot about it, but n- never have taken the plunge and watched it. As someone who like considers myself one of those guys who's passionate about movies that are so bad they're good and genuinely appreciates those, like I find them very, very enjoyable. And you know I have since I was a little kid. Yep. I'm ashamed I hadn't seen that till last night because it's on Netflix now. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Honestly, like, go home tonight, get the kids together, pour a nice glass of champagne, and sit by the fire and watch Roadhouse, because that movie is something else. I'm glad you feel that way. I won't do that, <laughs> just because I, I'm not interested in that way. I'll get to it. At some point, I'll, I'll, have, I'll have an inkling to want to throw something bad on and watch it. Um, it's not going to be today. But I get what you're saying. Uh, hopefully, I get it done before they take it down off Netflix. It's like an hour and a half-ish. It's it's completely mindless, but it's worth paying attention to. It is one of those movies where I I advocate for you should just watch it, put the phones away. But if it is like, all right, I got an email or a text I have to send, you're not going to miss anything other than Swayze doing some sort of like sexy, sweaty, shirtless, kicking some guy's ass while doing Tai Chi or something like that, but the plot is hilarious, the acting is so bad, it is such a, what I love about those movies is they're trying to be cool, they're trying to make it so good, and they just suck so badly, so to anyone listening, and to you, honestly, if you haven't seen Roadhouse, like me, shame on you, Uh, but go do it, fix that, it'll be the better for it, and I can't recommend that movie highly enough. So for someone who hasn't seen it, let me know why. Like, why should I go home and watch it outside? Like, the cell you gave of Patrick Swayze kicking ass is not going to do it for me. So what, what's the setup? Like, what's the premise of the movie? Because I don't even really know. I always remember hearing about Swayze and Roadhouse, but I don't know yeah. anything about it. Well, essentially what I appreciate about it in this kind of movie is I laugh so much harder at these than I do real comedies. Like, Kaylee and I were laughing really hard out loud like at least four or five times and then like consistent little chuckles for because it's just such an outrageous movie where again you'll find those spoof movies where you they can never capture the like magic of this kind of movie because they're trying to make it funny what's so special about these movies is not that they're just trying to make them good they're trying to make them really cool like the death wish movies that our brother sam and myself are really really into they yeah have a poster on the wall of death wish three right now and th- they are trying so hard to make the main characters such 
badasses. Like essentially the women want to be with them. Men want to be them, but they're such stiffs and such losers. And the acting in the writing is so terrible, but they're trying. And it almost has this kind of endearing, like, oh man, this guy's doing his best. He's just so bad. And so the plot of it essentially is Patrick Swayze is Dalton. He's like, the best bouncer in the game. And for some reason in this world, that makes him like a celebrity. Everyone knows who Dalton is. And this guy from this small town in Missouri comes and does the whole, like, I've got this really rough and tumble bar. I'm trying to clean it up. You're the best man for the job. And he does all like, give me five grand up top. You're paying for all expenses. And uh, just does this really demanding, confident way of being like, if we're doing it, it's my way or the highway. And he goes to this place uh, it's just the Roadhouse Roadside Bar where it's just this violent, crazy, um, crazy place, establishment where this nuts shit is happening all the time. But Patrick, even though he's a bouncer, pretty much gets the keys to run the business for the guy and just takes over the whole thing, cleans it up, and then gets in with the local like mobster who I don't even know what he does other than he claims he's opening a J.C. Penney's and that makes him like really evil. <laughs> and uh, he Patrick Swayze fires his nephew... So that goes into this whole thing of he fired his nephew, so the guy's out for Patrick Swayze, but now he's also banging the guy, the girl that used to be with this guy. He's the guy, he's um he's Jackie Treehorn from the Big Lebowski. Oh yeah, okay. So it's pretty much celebrity bouncer goes to small town Missouri and chaos ensues. And Sam Elliott's like the OG bouncer who before uh Patrick Swayze, he was the goat. And it, it's just insane. It is such an outrageous movie. Um, but it's hilarious and I cannot recommend it highly enough. I'm probably doing about the worst job selling this to anybody, but no, I get what you're getting at. Was Sam Elliott ever young? Like he was always the guy who was like the old hardened veteran. I know. Like Tombstone came out and that was my introduction to Sam Elliott, but Tombstone came out, man, that had to be like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Yeah. And he was the old grizzled veteran. Of the Earp family. Yeah. And then the Big Lebowski, which was 20 years ago, he's the old. Yeah. Like, it's just like, was Sam Elliott ever the young guy? I mean, I feel like Sam Elliott when he was 25 was 80. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I I, I don't, I can't imagine Sam Elliott in any kind of role where he's not the old dude. Um, And yeah, in this, even though he has kind of lighter hair, it's still graying. He looks great. Handsome young man. Terrible fighter. He has this fighting scene, which is so embarrassing and kind of made me lose some respect and some of the mystique that Sam Elliott carries with him. Uh, That's a good point, though. I can't think of one role where Sam Elliott would have been like the new kid on the block. He's always got to be the grizzled vet. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm I'm not going to go watch Roadhouse tonight. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I, I think you're... What's so amazing about those movies is you hit it right on the head. They're not meant to be intentionally funny, but they wind up being so funny because they're trying so hard to do all the things that I think on paper people think, like, this is what makes a guy totally a man's man. Women just kind of trip over their own feet, run into this guy. There's just this irresistible machismo and... Who did we cast again? Oh, yeah, it's Charles Bronson. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's this really creepy 85-year-old Lithuanian guy. Yeah, and he's not real smooth with the words, and he kind of moves like a robot. And for some reason, though, it's just this sex appeal that, like, the girls just can't get enough of this guy. And he's, like, 
a serial killer. Like he's oh, mur- yeah. murdering people throughout. I mean, so yeah, not to make this all about Death Wish, but that's what's so funny about these movies from that era when people try to recreate it they just can't because none of this stuff was made to be funny no and when you try making corniness to be funny it just doesn't pack the same punch no it doesn't it it really is like when you when you know the guy who's trying to be really funny he's probably not gonna be that funny but then you get the guy who's trying to be really sweet and then you can be like what a loser and laugh at him i feel like that's kind of the equivalent of these movies the funniest guys in school were always the guys not trying to be funny yeah i I find there were guys that were funny because they had some funny things to say but it was usually at the expense of the guys that thought they were money like yeah thinking back to junior high especially when people start to really go through the weird changes and are trying extra hard especially to cover up the insecurities the guys that showed up to school in like leather pants or something or wearing boots and they're you. actually yeah me i'm just thinking back what i wore yeah. during those time <laughs> um or like white jeans i definitely wore the white jeans <laughs> i remember sniping one of your guys white jeans and was playing soccer at recess and it, oh i thought i was just a legend cuz i showed up wearing these fucking white tight jeans and i got stuck on the girl i was on the team with the girls and it was just me against all the guys so i was i was like literally the knight in white shining armor and then i was like sliding all over the field i came home and like you or sam was just pissed that i got all these grass stains on your white jeans and yeah man i I, and and i think that's the reason why when we look back on our childhood and adolescence and teenage years especially when we laugh at stuff it's rarely ever or hopefully never like oh man you remember that time i pulled that sick prank or said that hilarious joke like no because none of that was actually funny but when you're like oh god you remember that little phase where yeah i was i thought i was the man because i wore white jeans or i had this insane skater phase or I don't know what it was for you, like with your Bobby Brown tapes or something like that, probably wearing like MC Hammer parachute pants. That's the stuff you look back on thinking you're sweet at the time and realize like, good God, that did not age well at all. I can't say that I was ever on the MC Hammer parachute pants train. Vanilla Ice? No. Ever? Did that ever cross your mind? Like if if I had the confidence, I would kind of have a bit of a Vanilla Ice swagger to me. I didn't really know much about them because my uh, one or two of my friends were into Vanilla Ice. And I remember they showed me a picture of him on his album cover. I think, what was it? like To the Extreme. To the Extreme. Oh, yeah. And I remember looking at him and being like, damn, like, I guess. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, he's got like that, those like kind of parachute pants, those insane broad shoulder jacket yeah. that and pops out. And his hair is like, immaculate almost flat out top. of the almost out of the photo yeah and like can you imagine the product that has to go in for like a white guy with straight hair the amount of product that has to go in your hair to make it that flat of a top a lot of moose i would imagine a lot of moose, lot of I, moose. but i remember looking at the picture and being like i don't really get it because the guy's wearing like 16 different colors his shoulders are they look like like a klingon thing from star <laughs> trek and uh i think um i just didn't really get it and I did like Ice Ice Baby. But I remember listening nope. to a couple of their songs on, the, on his tape, and I was like, this is kind of shitty. Oh, I can name two songs. It's Ice Ice Baby and I don't even... The, that play Ninja that funky, Turtles. Play that funky music, because it was a cover Oh, from, did he do a remake of that? From, I think, Wild Cherry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know and what, it, this like, is was actually... Like total low-hanging fruit, because it was like, hey, I'm a white guy who raps. What song should I cover? And be like, oh, play that funky music, white boy. It's like, oh, there you go. This is making me call an audible on my hot take. This doesn't happen often. I'd like to think I... 
I okay. pre-calculate the hot take. I was going to yeah. go one direction, but I'm saving that for next week. Here's my hot take. Vanilla ice is underrated. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Do you actually? Yeah, I would because I think I was a kid at the time, but everybody was into vanilla ice. Everyone was into vanilla ice enough that someone made a movie about vanilla ice, not playing vanilla ice, and be just being vanilla ice. Cool as ice. Cool as ice. On the brutal movie, not an underrated movie. No, I, I think that's probably like not what you put in the this guy's underrated category. I gotta look something up. Look it up. Because there was a uh, Purple Rain, and that came out. I need to know because I feel like these. Was he like the White Prince? It sounds like a racist kind of thing. <laughs> I, what year did that go? So Purple Rain is nineteen eighty four. Cool as ice. That has to be like 92. 91. Okay, so different Almost. eras. That's not... All right, That that's bad part of the take. You know what? I should probably paraphrase my take. I think Vanilla Ice is not underrated. Vanilla Ice is terrible. I should rephrase. Ice Ice Baby is underrated. That had a huge impact. Decent song. The music video is hilarious because he can actually move a little bit, but they get all those guys in the same outfits just going bonkers on top of that building. And there's one of the dancers has a flat top and a mullet, which is <laughs> insane. And when they're doing those dances of like the hands on the hips and kind of like shuffling back and forth sort of thing, I, I think that's a good song where I still hear it. And I'm like, it's catchy. I don't think anyone, I, I don't want to pretend I'm a hip hop guy. I don't think anyone would say like, yeah, he's one of like a top top 10 MC of all time. Oh, He's not that bad either. God. I have heard other rap songs by probably more well-respected rappers where I'm like, this guy's just mumbling like an idiot. Mm. At, le at, least, at least Vanilla has a little flow and it rhymes. That's the whole point of it. He's talking about how sweet he is. He's talking about driving around Miami and killing people. It feels like that's half of what being a rapper is anyways. And when people knock it for the whole, like, yeah, it just sampled um, uh, Under Pressure, right? Yep. Again, that's what so many rap songs are. Like they just take samples, and it's it, it. He didn't get too creative with mixing it up or anything like that. But I think it's more the package of it's Vanilla Ice. It's a punchline. It's a joke, and I fully understand why. But at the same time, I know that song had a big, had big cultural significance, and it still is a song that I feel holds up, and at the very least, will put a smile on someone's face, and you can laugh at it. But you'll listen to the whole thing. You're not really like, oh, I can't listen to this song. It's terrible. Skip. You're like, you can say like, oh god, this song. You're still probably gonna listen to it though. Yeah, I'd listen to it, and I probably know all the words. I definitely know. I thought yeah. that made looking back again to being sweet in high school. There were a few times, like way too old, should have known way better. But I'd be like rapping Vanilla Ice when it came on. I'm thinking like, yeah, chicks will like this one. And uh, I don't know, man. I'm, that, that's my hot take, and I'm happy with it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I dare you to listen to any more Vanilla Ice music and tell me that no. it's good. I think Ice Ice Baby, as it stands by itself, maybe you got something there, but I, I don't know if you could think of a worse way to spend time than be like, hey, man, I'm going to put on the entire album. I'm just going to listen to it from start to finish. And I'm pretend like this isn't awful because it be is. Grind. It's it would be hard, and I'd be curious because he had to the extreme for sure. He had another album, but I have no idea what it's called. Yeah, it doesn't interest me. No. Let me ask you this one: MC Hammer or Vanilla Ice? MC Hammer. Yeah. Yeah. I think Vanilla Ice, like Ice Ice Baby, was a cooler song. Yeah. But like, I actually can't even say that. Like, 
Can't Touch This was a really big deal. But again, just samples another. He samples Super Freaking Mad, oh, yeah. right? But he had other songs, I think, that were like pretty Too Legit popular. to Quit's pretty good. Too Legit to Quit was, yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, I guess catalog, celebrating catalog as we always do. You probably go to Hammer, but... If I have to take Can't Touch This or Ice Ice Baby, I'm going Ice Ice Baby. 10 I would, times I would, out of 10. Too, I would too, I would too. It's the easier song, and it, plus also it's kind of funnier to listen to. Yeah, like I like you can't touch this. When you look back on it, that's such an innocent song. Totally, and it's cool. Like I like it just because like remembering being that age when it came out, and the whole song is just talking about like, hey man, like I'm wicked yeah i'm the man yeah and you can't come anywhere close to me whereas like ice ice baby really like tells the story of him you know got some edge in his to car it. and you know he empties the clip and all this <laughs> stuff and it's like, he and, and his dj shay are driving down beachfront avenue is all a1a beachfront avenue yeah i know and he's got all, all like yeah it's it's, it's kind of like it's kind of like the nerdy white version of regulators yeah. You know what I mean? Because it kind of tells that story about like cruising around with your boy, like you said, unloading the clips. Uh, I'm sure we could talk about this at greater length another time. Here's a, my sub hot take, I, I guess, going with this. Regulators is probably, when you actually look at the lyrics, the funniest song of all time. It's a really funny song when you like do a storyboard for it. Yes. Of like, hey, this is what happened on Thursday night. Yeah. This is how it started. Man, you won't believe what happened last night. Yeah, this is the middle, and here's how it ended. It right ended real that. well, but there was a couple moments in there where I, I was a little worried. Yeah, man. And it, it's just so yeah. funny when you look at it, because he breaks down of like Warren G's driving around, sees some guy shooting dice, literally just gets out of his car just to say what's up. Immediately, they pull guns on him. All he says is, I'm stuck. And then Nate Dogg's like trying to get it in. Pretty much gets a sneaking suspicion his boy Warren G's in trouble, so he goes and kills everybody. And then they pick up some prostitutes. And uh, again, what's so funny about this kind of thing is it's always talking about how great and how sweet they are. So you think they're going to talk about like, going to the Four Seasons and some like lavish, expensive thing. But instead, they just drive to the East Side Motel <laughs> and just put in some work. And that's the song. Well, you got to stay authentic. I think that's a reminder that authenticity is, is of the utmost importance. 213, LBC. That's right. I will say, as a white basketball player that came up in the 90s, I do feel you squandered a serious opportunity there to not buy into the vanilla ice thing and for it to not only be socially acceptable, but probably kind of cool. You got to remember, though, I, I missed being at the peak of that um, because, I mean, in 1991, I was nine. So, I mean, it wasn't like I was really going to be able to move the needle a, a whole heck of a lot on that. We did have older cousins... And we did have a cousin that was probably the closest thing you could have to Vanilla Ice that was in high school at the time. If someone told me Cool as Ice was based off our cousin and the only guy that could act it was Vanilla Ice and it wasn't actually based on Ice himself, I'd be like, that makes even more yeah, sense. Yeah, that seems accurate. Yeah, I, I agree. So I, I kind of saw it through that lens. And even then, I was at the time, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm buying this. But... Yeah, I I don't feel like I missed any opportunity there, and if anything, probably dodged a gigantic bullet, because if I did, that's true. Try to go in on that, and there was any sort of historical recount of like a photo of like, hey, this is when I had my vanilla ice haircut. 
That could have been tough. Yeah, it would have been a tough, tough transition to go from vanilla ice enthusiast to wearing flannel and liking Kurt Cobain. Yeah, that's a hard swing. True. From one side of the pendulum to the other. All right, I can respect that decision then. Yeah, I don't feel like I missed anything. If anything, I probably avoided a, a huge landmine on a uh, a real resume, real resume downer. <laughs> so this was a pleasant surprise. I was not anticipating talking about vanilla ice at all, and I think we're going to have to come back to this well sometime because I used to have my hotmail. I, I had my stupid hotmail when I was in uh, in junior high, and then I I got into this huge vanilla ice thing, and I made my hotmail. I tried making it vanilla ice, tried making it vanilla underscore, but obviously it was being to the punch. So my hotmail is vanilla triple underscore ice at hotmail.com. No sixty nine. That was kind of a squandered chance. Uh, but yeah. no, nah, I'm glad we talked about vanilla ice. Do you do you have your own hot take? Yeah, you know it's not much of a hot take as much as it's just a pretty easy observation. Um, we saw that the NBA started back up with guys getting down to Orlando, um, beginning the first couple steps of this bubble. And while it's for sure different, and while it is going to be interesting to see what happens and. Uh, for everybody, it's going to be a gigantic adjustment. I'll tell you what I didn't care for. What I didn't care for is things where you saw players like bitching about the food and like bitching about like, man, look at this blanket that they gave me. And like, oh man, I got to sit in a room for 24 hours. We can, might as well do it. I really didn't care for J.R. Smith before. I assume that's what you're talking about. Well, who, yeah, who else would it be? Yeah. And what I also don't care about, care for, not care about, but care for, is this bullshit narrative that came out last week of, oh, man, J.R. Smith wasn't in the league. He was so depressed. His mental health. This guy was really down. And the second the guy gets back on a team, he goes out to Orlando with the Lakers and does an Instagram live where he goes, bruh, look at my blanket. Shut the fuck up with this bogus, sorry, but like with this bogus attitude of like, man, I'm just grateful to be back in the league. Then don't Instagram live the same week that you said that and that you were struggling mentally because you weren't playing basketball and complain that being in the bubble kind of sucks. Get real, man. Go play basketball. Be grateful for the opportunity on Monday and be grateful for the opportunity on Saturday. Don't just do it for a day when you can kind of fake an article. Be the real thing. Show some gratitude. There's a million people that would want to be in your situation and... There's also a bunch of people down there and everywhere that don't have jobs, that aren't eating, probably as good as the guys are in the bubble, and there's tons of people that pay attention to this stuff. Show some gratitude. Shut the fuck up. That's my hot take. Love it. Love it. You got to stop diminishing your hot takes, man, because you come in cold. You're saying, ah, it's not a hot take. And then it was a good one. Don't diminish. I'm glad you said that, man, because I, uh, shocker, agree with you. Uh, it's 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 just it's a bummer when when you hear that kind of stuff, and especially right now, we we need to be more cognizant and conscious of when people say they're they're struggling with with mental issues. You don't want to dismiss it, but it's guys like him that make you do it. It makes you do two things: dismiss the whole haphazard throwing around narrative of like, oh, I'm depressed. It's like, well, okay, well, there's a difference between feeling depressed and having clinical depression. So, and, you know, as someone, not to get my soapbox, that has struggled with that stuff for a long time, I guess you could say it kind of triggers me a little bit of, yeah, don't don't say this is like the one thing and I'm missing in my life. Then when you get it, immediately find the next thing that's making you unhappy. And it's it's something as stupid as a blanket and you're not happy with uh, the food you're getting. It's just like, 
this completely reinforces the stereotypes some people are trying to get away from and doing a good job of that athletes, especially athletes in the NBA, are just these pampered, whiny, spoiled brats. And it, it, it just reinforced every negative stereotype in that aspect. And yeah, I, I, I think he's a dumbass. I mean, he, he's unbelievably talented. I remember when we watched Denver play the Raptors in Edmonton for next yeah, game. Right. And just in the warm-up, I could not believe how talented J.R. Smith was. So there's there's no doubt to that. He's a super athletic, talented, skilled player. But what a fucking idiot. And I, I'm glad you said that, man, because I agree with every word of it. To counteract it, there was... And it was just one of those like stupid pictures you see on Instagram. But um, John Morant had a quick line of like, the food's fine, my room's fine, I'm not a silver spoon guy, I'm happy to be here. Good and you him. look at that and you'd be like, Good oh man, him. John Morant just went from being like ex- really likable yeah. to extraordinarily likable. And it, it really is one of those things where, like what you said, silver spoon athletes are not inspiring. Silver spoon athletes think maybe that they're being funny or who knows? Jared Smith's like thirty nine. Yeah, like, who man. knows? I I don't know these actually. Old enough to know better. He's old enough to know better that like, hey man, these op- opportunities are clearly fleeting. I was playing on a finals team, and the year after, I wasn't in the league. Yeah, which is one of those things that makes you wonder of like, well, I wonder what the overall consensus is about me if I can go from being a starting guard on a finals team to having no job the following year. And then the team he goes to is, of course, LeBron's team. So I'm yeah. sure that's the stigma of, like, he, he can play if on If you're going to play, it's going to be with LeBron. Like, you are the, like, current Mike Miller. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're going to get a job, it's because you're LeBron's boy. But if you're, if you're another GM or another team, it's like, should we get J.R. Smith? taking like, no. the chance. Yeah, I, I, I always reference this because it's a good pod. Um, but J.J. Reddick's podcast, he talked about that specifically, too. He didn't say anything about J.R. Smith, but he... Um, he acknowledged that uh, I kind of just belched there and did the talk through while I'm belching. That was disgusting, and I'm sorry. But he he just kind of acknowledged, um, yeah, the food was, by the time it got to his room, being in quarantine was like a little cold, and it's not some, you know, five-star or whatever, how the fuck they rate food, but not some immaculate dish. But he also explained everyone's locked up in their room. They have to go door-to-door serving these, and they're just like bagged meals so of course it's going to cool off or whatever they're trying their best it sounds like it's the nba they're the resources they have considering what's going on are going to be second to none and i think i would imagine most of them have that understand but all you need is one dumbass especially when he's the first guy to say anything about it complaining and it just turns people off so much and myself included i saw that and it made me roll my eyes in the sense of just what a spoiled brat this is the first day if you're been if you've been there for a month and like there's been bumps and maybe you've had there's been guys dropping like flies getting sick and there's huge issues with the food distribution or something like that i could get them saying like you know what this has been tough yeah we know that the nba has actually has spent i think over 100 million dollars making this deal work we know that there's also incentive for the NBA to have games happen. They need certain TV revenue that if these games didn't happen, they would not be getting. So before you call NBA, like, you know, just these un- incredible humanitarians, yeah, there is incentive for them. However, of all the major professional leagues, they seem to have done it as close to doing it the right way as, as anyone could while making sure that they're providing enough leadership to keep the players as safe as possible. Totally. Like they're doing daily testing. They were talking um, the other day about how like Major League Baseball guys are coming back, and one of the players was just like, man, I haven't been tested in six days. Damn. So there are major leagues that aren't 
taking care of their guys when they say that they're going to. Having said all that, to get the opportunity to go down there and play ball, you could have easily said no. You could have stayed home and continued to do really nice features on ESPN of how depressed you are because you don't have a job playing basketball, making lots of money. Um, And instead, you go down there and, like, the people who are working at this bubble are putting themselves at risk. For sure, the people that are working at these things, it so often goes unnoticed how hard they try to accommodate these guys because they're as starstruck as anyone. And to have a dude like that, and, I mean, truthfully, at the end of the day, like, who really cares? It's J.R. Smith. Everyone knows the story. He's kind of moved more into clown territory than people being like, oh, man, what an amazing ambassador for the... He's a meme the, now. Yeah, big time. He's the guy who forgot what the score was He's the guy when Le- He's State. the guy who's looking at LeBron when LeBron's doing the arms yes. thing. That's pretty much just become, like you said, some sort of gif or some sort of meme. Yeah. But at the same time, though, like you just see that and you just... My conclusion to this is Silver Spoon athletes are the pits. Like, totally. There's just no way of getting around it when you see this stuff of rolling your eyes or mumbling to yourself, then go home or don't do it. But don't portray to people that it's like, man, I'm here, but it's kind of bullshit. And it's like, yeah, man, I kind of think the level of bullshit starts and ends with you. Absolutely. So either get down there and hoop and put your head down and be that tough person that everyone claims to be. Um, or stay off Instagram and just, I don't know, bitch on the phone to somebody. Totally. I, I hated it. I, it was it drove oh, me nuts. No, it's a bad time to do that, especially with how many people, like you said, are out of work and really struggling with their mental health. Right now, this is a really hard time for a lot of people who are isolated or not around people, and um, maybe they had mental health issues going into it. So when the whole thing is, yeah, I'm just so terribly depressed. All I want is my job. Get the job, then immediately then complain bitch about, about the, it. The circumstance of your job. Uh, come on, man. Yeah, Get real. I hate it. F that guy. Let's I move, agree. Let's move on to something better. Please. That doesn't include J.R. Smith. Let's get to a real athlete here. Let's talk about real athletics, and I would tell you who I'd love to see. In the sharpshooter right now is J.R. Smith. <laughs> but um, about a week or two ago, um, it was one of Alberta's tops, one of the legends, uh, Brett the Hitman Hart's birthday. Excellence of execution. Yeah. Best there is, best there was, best there ever will be. Then this could be a discussion for another time. That could be the best line, top five line in um, wrestling history. Best there is, best there was, best there ever will be. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I know Stone Cold has the thing and the rock, you know, like would take 16 minutes to say if you smell it. Yeah, yeah, just drag it out. Yeah. But the best there is, best there was, best there ever will be was tremendous because it ages really well. Totally. It's not Mr. Ass. It would be not, yeah. Like, I'll tell you, yeah, what doesn't age well. It, it would be nice if he had a little bit more pep on the mic because there were a few times where he was like, I'm the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. And you're just thinking, like, God, <laughs> did this guy drive in on a forklift? <laughs> like, I know he's from Alberta. I but think I heard someone Lord. give this speech at the Hilltop. Yeah. I yeah. And I'm pr- yeah. Was that Bret Hart last night at the high run in Edmonton talking when about. Pin, when he won a pinball game? Yeah. <laughs> I'm the best there is, the excellent of execution, eh? Like, Shut up, Bret. Okay, so here's what we have that came across Twitter, and it's pretty good. Um, it's the top six matches of Bret Hart's career, and uh, you got to pick three. So we'll go with two because Ethan's a little bit younger. I don't think that there were uh, he, these. Some of these were on the radar for him, um, but we got six choices. So I'll name them off, and this is pretty good. 
Choice A, Bret Hart vs. Mr. Perfect, SummerSlam 1991. Like I said before about 1991, I was nine, but when I got you know a couple more years under my belt, I did see this. It was pretty sweet. This is when Bret Hart kind of had his arrival match, beat Mr. Perfect, won the Intercontinental title. It was a big deal. Number two, Choice B, Bret Hart vs. Shawn Michaels, WrestleMania, 60-minute Iron Man match. Made Shawn Michaels into the whole thing that he became. Big deal. Uh, choice C. This is the front runner for the choice of uh, top match. Bret Hart versus Steve Austin. If you were into wrestling, this was the match of, you know, him and Austin had this really good rivalry. The promos were great. Austin was new. His whole, like, talking shit thing was, like, never been seen before. And Brett puts him in the sharpshooter. Steve doesn't actually tap. He passes out. He's got blood pouring down his face. It's like the oh man. It's like the best. And he's just screaming. Yeah, it's, tr- it's unbelievable theater. You no, know, essentially, he's probably just getting like a good stretch on his yeah, quads and stuff. Opening <laughs> the hip up. Yeah. So choice D: Owen Hart versus Bret Hart, which was big because that was you know the brother feud. It was done really well. Uh, they really, really drew it out. Awfully good stuff. Choice E. Bret Hart versus British Bulldog, SummerSlam 92. Um, in the UK, pretty sure at Wembley Stadium. Big thing where Bret puts uh, Bulldog over. And then the last one, which I kind of remember, but not really, uh, is Bret Hart versus Undertaker, SummerSlam 97. All I remember about it is that Bret won, and Michaels was the referee and cost Undertaker the title. So I'll do it quickly for me. Um, my top two choices from that, the first one's a runaway. It's Brad and, and Stone Cold. Yeah, no one's going to dispute. I, yeah, I, I don't want to do the whole just echo what you say, but that's just factually the best one. Yeah, I I did see like clips of that not long ago. It's pretty good. Like, well, it, it's pretty good. We'll sing Brett's praises to the cows come home. Uh, Stone Cold, the older I've gotten, the more I appreciate him because I hated him so much when I was a kid. I fucking hated Stone Cold. And the whole reason was because of the uh, torture he sometimes put Brett through. As a young kid, watching Stone Cold beat Brett's ass was so hard for me. And he was irritating because he was talking trash and like bashing the colors. Yeah, I remember him doing the you know pink and black tights and you know this ain't ballet, son. It was really his stuff was great. So I think that's if we could agree that's the that's the runaway for top choice. Totally. Okay. I think where it gets tricky for, for number two is um, it's either Brett and Shawn Michaels or Brett versus Owen. So Go with your gut on this one because I know where I stand. I, it, for me, it's Owen. Okay, so I'll let you take that one, and, and I'll, I'll take Shawn just to have some type of debate. Why it was a big deal on my end for the Shawn thing was because they kept trying to make Shawn Michaels into this big superstar back then. He had the real, like huge entrance where he like came down some like gigantic like zip line <laughs> and i mean i don't know whose idea it was for him to have like tearaway sequence rhinestone pants but Those shades and like the cop hat and yeah stuff. yeah strange outfit choices for the time but that was a big deal because brett lost the belt and i remember i mean for a kid's attention span watching a 60 minute match was was no joke but also gauntlet. too thinking about it doing anything for 60 minutes is uh, is a tall order, and these two guys, I remember watching and thinking, like, this is awfully entertaining. Yeah, I mean, a 60-minute I mean, go. 
two of the uh, two of the great workers in the industry. There's no doubt about it. And plus, they also have the whole thing of that they genuinely didn't like each other, and I think that's been kind of beat into the ground of how Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels like. As people didn't like each other, there was the legitimacy to whatever happened later with the Montreal Screwjob, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So Whether it, you're a wrestling fan or not, uh, you should watch all those documentaries on the Montreal Screwjob because it's, it's very interesting, and especially if you're in Alberta, it hits close to home. It's the Hart family, man. It's the pride and joy of... Uh, very much so. There was a great documentary that came out when we were younger. Um, wrestling I was, with I was, Shadows? Yeah, that's it. And it was kind of from the like Alberta viewpoint. Oh, yeah. Where it was Brett hanging out, talking in the house with his wife or his kids, and like everyone sounds like they might head outside for a dart after. Oh or, my <laughs> god! Yeah, they were all ripping on the quads after to just go like go <laughs> swimming in oil or something. Those were the first. That's the first family of Alberta right there. But it was pretty sweet because it was also it's important to point out that I mean Bret Hart's from Calgary and. That was a big deal growing up that there was this famous wrestler and this famous cultural, I guess you might be able to say, especially in our era, kind of cultural icon that was well, was really famous and was everybody's favorite. Well, wrestlers were celebrities back then, so it was actually acceptable. Like yeah. Especially as it went into the Attitude Era, they were rock stars. So it wasn't just like this nerdy, like you're a comic book, graphic novelist, little weirdo nerd creep. It's like, no, it's just, it would be no different than saying like, Bret Hart's my favorite wrestler as opposed to Nirvana's my favorite band. Like yeah, it was, for sure. It was on that kind of level uh, back then. And it, yeah, it's funny because you get this iconic, huge, wildly popular figure from Alberta. It means so much. And yeah, it wasn't like Nickelback, also Alberta, biggest band in the world. And uh, you, uh, unless you were a closet Nickelback fan that was like, oh, they fucking suck, eh? And then going back and just like shred into animals or like <laughs> silver side up or some... Shit like that. It was socially acceptable to like the Hart family. So it, it was huge, huge significance. Yep. That's kind of part of the reason why for me it just is closer to home for the Owen match is you get two guys from the same family from Alberta, first family of wrestling, first family of wrestling in Alberta. And uh, I think it's just really cool that, especially as the younger brother, it's pretty sweet that Brett, who was really at the top of his game, let Owen go over on him. As a younger sibling, that's just the greatest thing in the world to watch. Just I don't know. That, for, and not just that, it was a really good match because Owen was a great fucking wrestler. And again, shout out uh, documentaries. There's this Dark Side of the Ring series on Vice, I believe. Um, kind of a whatever series. They have some really cringy reenactments, but the one on uh, Owen Hart is very, very sad, very, uh, very worth watching. So I'd recommend that one too. But yeah, for me, it's got to be Stone Cold's versus Brett's at the top, and I'm taking Owen for sure over Shawn Michaels. Let me ask you this, if you don't mind. Put your bias aside. Who's the better all-time wrestler, Shawn Michaels or Bret Hart? Oh. You know what it is. You just don't want to say it. Um, yeah, I'm not going to say it. It's Shawn Michaels. Just say it. No, because I think my growing up in Alberta-ness just doesn't allow me because back then it was, yeah, you had to be all in on Bret. It I mean, hurts. In, in the early 90s, you had to be all in and... um. Yeah. It hurts to say, but if you're going to be real about it, who had the better career and who's probably the more dynamic in-ring worker, more a little more dynamic on the mic, it's got to be Shawn Michaels. I hate it. I hate saying it because I think Shawn Michaels is a giant loser, especially as he went from the sexy boy who's coming out with, I think I'm cute, I know I'm sexy. Now he's 73 and eyes looking in 18 different directions, went from the skullet to just a cue ball, and he's still playing that song. And uh, 
that didn't age when it's still coming out every now and then with Triple H telling everybody to suck it. And it's like, Grandpa, you can't say that anymore. But total career-wise, I hate saying it because my heart says bread all day, but I know I know it's Sean. It sucks. It sucks. Well, I will say who, the guy who definitely had more matches in jeans than... Uh, than the other, it's definitely Shawn Michaels. So that should be a metric they have because I feel like yeah. that's actually a lot more impressive than we give credit for. Yeah. Who was the best? In, have who you was, ever tried doing anything in je- tight jeans and cowboy boots? Yeah, who was athletic in jeans? Yeah, like, did you ever just go out and play ball shirtless wearing cowboy boots and skin tight jeans? I have shot around in jeans before, and it is incredibly limiting. Yeah, you're trying to shoot around. You're not giving a guy sweet chin music though. I mean, believe me, no. I've tried too. I'm out at the bar. Someone looks at me funny. You don't think I start stomping and he knows what time it is? I haven't done that, obviously, but <laughs> I think um, I have, like, in junior high a couple times, someone gives you the whole, like, I think I can beat you in one-on-one, and you all of a sudden wind up playing one-on-one, and you're wearing jeans, and you, like, try to drive to the basket and, like, <laughs> raise your knee or something like that, and your jeans just, like, pull you right. It's brutal. So... Hats off to the guy who, for sure, I know wrestled at least one match in jeans. I'll give him that. Speaking about playing ball now, that is a good transition. We were supposed to do this last week, but now we are going to be talking about your 3x3 career. And I know as you play for Team Edmonton, as I've said before, your jersey consists of acid wash jeans, safety vests, and steel-toed boots sponsored by, uh, I don't know, Mark's Men's Warehouse or something. <laughs> No, I, that, this is something I wanted to talk about because I don't think a lot of people really fully understand and grasp the magnitude of what 3x3 is. I've told people that much like beach volleyball came out of volleyball and is now an Olympic sport that's you know very um, well-respected, 3x3 is just kind of in the midst of that, right? It's kind of, it's, it's, it's what, like 10 years old maybe in all now? If that... Um I think it really took form of, of what it resembles now. Um, I want to say four or five years ago, when I think they really nailed down what they wanted the rules to be, the use of uh, their ba- basketball is specific to this game. They've had versions of it, and you could see a kind of a steady evolution as time went of what this was going to be. Um, but I've, I've been involved in it for, this was going on my fourth year now. So probably six years, okay. I would say, they've, they've had this type of format, which is now an Olympic sport. And also, uh, like just like you said, with beach volleyball or like rugby sevens, like a, su- a subculture sevens, yeah. of, of what uh, five-on-five basketball is. How would... How would you describe it to people that everybody knows what five-on-five basketball looks like, even if they don't fully understand the game or the sport or anything like that? But if someone was just to ask you the generic question of like, well, what is it? How would you describe it? I'd say it's three-on-three basketball where you have maybe something resembling a quarter court, a three-point line, and then a few feet behind it. Um, It's not a... uh, five-on-five style game where you have X amount of time and whoever's winning at the end of that time wins. It's a 10-minute game or the first team to 21, so there is a bit of a race to the finish line. That does create uh, a level of excitement in the game where people seem to really resonate with that, and you're starting to see that take shape even in in five-on-five basketball with uh, the NBA All-Star game and that Elam ending that they had where um, you're just having... 
a style where you know that a, a, a made shot is going to be the end of the game. Totally. And a finish line that the teams are racing to that does take away some of those painful things that come from watching blowout games or games that have been reduced to a lot of fouling and free throws and standing around. So for 3x3, I, I would say, you know, it's fast and it's quick decisions. And when it's played at its highest level, it's very entertaining of a mixture of skill and shooting with more space on the floor to be creative. I, I really, really find that sport fun to play in the little bit I, I've played of it, even though it's barbaric, especially for basketball. But something I think that's really cool about it is that two-point field goals and five-on-five are worth one point. Three-pointers are worth two points in this. And I just think that changes the whole dynamic so much because now a three-pointer or a two-pointer is worth double the amount of points instead of worth a third more. And that just changes the whole thing so much. And uh, there's so much strategy to it, which when you're a guy like me, and you'll, you'll, we'll have some guys who played like college basketball, some lower, some higher level guys and good players. And we come in and we kind of just think it's like, all right, well, here's three on three, but you don't check it at the top, like big three every every time. It's just go, go, go. It's exhausting. But we're also like, it's three on three. We know what we're doing. And then so quickly when you play against guys who are an actual 3x3 player, the plays and the schematics and uh, just every aspect of it, we wouldn't even, that wouldn't even cross our mind is so evident so quickly. And I have a friend of mine who saw you play in Prague with his wife, and his wife just does not like basketball, and she thought it was a blast. I think it's a little bit more palatable, too, because, like you said, it's only 10 minutes, and if a blowout's a blowout, like, all right, well, it's over in four minutes. Fine, I didn't just sit down for a 40-minute game. That sucks. I obviously will always have a soft spot for 5 on 5 because, for me, that's original basketball, but there's a lot to be said for, like, the entertainment value of 3x3. I think so. You hit on a, a pretty key thing there. If the casual fan is going to sit down and watch something. It's helpful that for 3x3, you know that the time commitment is shorter. If you get blown out in 3x3, it can still be kind of entertaining because if the if one team's blowing the other out, that usually means that that, that one team that's winning is really clicking. Yeah. Um, and then also, too, there is kind of a mercy ending to it of, like, you're getting blown out and the game's done. It's not going to get it's not going to get dragged out further where it's like okay I think you know we're down forty here this is getting yeah. kind of tough to find enjoyment in I'm agreeing with you from a traditionalist standpoint five on five will always be basketball yeah but one of the things that you do in five on five basketball is you use these abbreviations of the game to teach how to play five on five yeah. properly one on one two on two. And three on three. And you'd use it to teach spacing. You use it to teach specific playing points. And they're vital in players learning spacing on the court, pace, how to work in certain scenarios. And generally speaking, when you talk to any player that has played ball and been involved in some type of season of practice, people love three on three. Those yeah. are usually parts of practice that guys and girls are like, I love when we play three on three. Yeah. There's more space on the floor to be creative offensively. You have more room to operate. The players that don't really get it are like, man, I'm busting everybody's ass. And it's like, well, that's because there's four less people on the yeah. floor. There's yeah. way more space. It's really hard to guard someone when you don't have more people on the floor to crowd it. Do you think this is a good way to teach young kids how to play basketball to eventually get to five on five? 100%. I, I, I wish people did more with and maybe they do and I'm just selling it short but I, I wish there was more focus 
on the competitive side of playing one-on-one. Like I don't, I know there's a lot of focus on, you know, skill workouts and, and things like that, but like just bare bones stuff of like, Hey, I got to have two, three dribbles max and I got to find a shot and I don't get foul calls. Yeah. So I got to be creative while it's physical and with three X three, what I like is that's when the pace is high, Mm -hmm. when you're fatigued, when there's quick turnaround, when there aren't a lot of areas within the game that you can find points to rest at. I think that there's a lot of potential for teaching kids how to make reads quicker, how to be a multifaceted player of dribbling, passing, shooting, not being able to hide, not being hid. I like that nobody, if, if you can't do a certain required aspect, you will get exposed so quickly in it. Sure. I really like that about 3x3 because you can't just have the big goon, which is kind of going away from 5-on-5 five five anyways. You need to be reasonably yeah, skilled for the five most point. Yeah, 5 become less and less of that. I but think. still, if you're just a back-to-the-basket post who all you've got is a little drop step or hook shot, it's kind of like, all right, well, you better be unbelievable on protecting the rim or get every rebound because now again it's that point we're like well if you can't hit a three you're we're, we're cutting it in half of potential points we could get right yeah and if you can't guard away from the basket exactly other teams because the switches have to be you so further quick. and further yeah we uh i want to i'm curious if you know specifically why or how you feel about it so for for those of you that haven't watched it yet and it's really hard to i think to fully grasp a five on five basketball is not a full contact sport but it is a contact sport and it Definitely deserves his reputation, especially when you watch the NBA for the flopping and kind of having this, uh, you know, if, especially if you're a Canadian, you go from watching the NHL and guys are just getting laid out and then you watch um, the NFL dudes are getting laid out and get right back up. Then you see a guy get breathed on. He needs to be carried out in a stretcher in the NBA. I get why it has its reputation, but it also is one of those sports that you don't understand how physical it is until you've done it. Whereas 3x3, you take that up however many notches where things that would be a flagrant foul in basketball. And this isn't like the rhetoric or hyperbole you talk about, about back in the nineties, get laid out and you go for a layup. No, there's times where even just I played and I've watched you guys play against some lunatics from Serbia or something. And it's, it's, it's insane. The scratch marks you come out with the grabbing, the shoving that just aren't called anything. A, do you know why that is? And B, how do you feel about that? Do you think it's too far? It should be watered down or is it just right? Well, to explain to, to – that's a good question. To explain to someone who's not familiar with 3x3, the reason that this stuff happens is when the game was designed and has taken the form that it has now is they want the pace of play and the style to be fast. They don't want a lot of stopping. They want players to be the one that dictate the outcome. The flaw in that or the uh, wiggle room that – players can find in there is players know that they don't want the refs meaning and the rules don't want the game to stop so there's a lot of guys that take a lot of liberties with that right there's a lot of guys that push the envelope because they want to see just how far it can be pushed until the ref does have to step in and start blowing the whistle because here's another thing that's important with the 3x3 rules if you get fouled on a shot in the act of shooting if it's a two-point shot so behind what would be the traditional three-point line you get two shots if you're fouled inside the, what is the traditional three-point line, you get one shot. When the opposing team reaches six fouls, if it's just regular fouls, nothing happens. Non-shooting fouls means you just check the ball up top, you maintain possession. When you reach seven fouls, 
no matter what is happening. I could be dribbling to try and pass to another player. If you foul me on the seventh foul, I'm shooting two free throws no matter what. So I'm going right to the free throw line and shooting two free throws. For foul seven, eight, and nine, that's the rule. On foul 10 and any foul that comes after that, I'm shooting two free throws and my team gets the ball back. So if you've fouled up to 10 and you've just made the game a bloodbath, you're really in a tough position because you're going to have the opposition shooting two free throws and just getting the ball immediately back. Yeah. So the rules are designed so that it doesn't turn into a hack fest. The problem is has often been the consistency in how the game is called right. because some games there is a flow and there is accountability where they want the game to be skilled, they want the game to move quickly, and they will blow the whistle in order to set the tempo and pace of we want skilled players to play quick and fast and dictate how this goes. When they don't do that and it turns into a wrestling match, one, the game is less enjoyable to watch, and two, players get really frustrated. And I feel that also does open the door for potential problems and conflict. The mandate going forward, from what I've been told, is... They want it to be a quick game. They want it to be a skilled game. They want more skilled players playing it, even though there are a, there's as good a level as there's been in 3x3 since I've been involved now. More and more players are going to continue to come into this. The players that are in it now that are younger are going to continue to get better. So the style of play is only going to get stronger. What has to happen, though, on the, on the refereeing side of it is I feel there has to be more consistency from event to event to make sure that this is a recognizable style of play from event to event so that fans aren't subjected and players aren't too of having to watch these crappy games when it's just hacking and pushing and grabbing and shoving because no one likes to watch it. It's boring, it's unentertaining, and also too, it neutralizes skill and speed and ability because it makes it all about the wrestling match. And you sometimes play these teams that aren't very good, but they just know how to grab and hold yeah. and push and they wind up beating you and you look at it afterwards and you're like, those guys are terrible. They're awful, yeah. but they abuse the rules in order to get a win, and that really is a kick in the junk because oftentimes when you know you hear people first come into it, be like, that guy's not this or that guy's not that. Yeah, man, it doesn't matter. Three on three is different, and if you yeah. can't handle the bumping and the pushing and the shoving to some degree, you're not going to last very long. It's rough, man. It's it, Even some of the times I've watched, which um, I, I think people should know, so it's FIBA 3X3, just like FIFA is the international organization for soccer, FIBA is the international organization for basketball. And they have 3x3, and they'll always have these weekend events. Um, and it, the production value is so good. They have commenting. They got the instant replay. They got the highlights. They got everything like that. But sometimes you'll watch and say you're outdoors because you'll have indoors and outdoor events. And it, it, it's the wind is insane, so you can't really shoot from outside. And it just becomes a wrestling match. And then there's been the ones I've played in. Uh, which aren't FIBA 3X3, like not the level you're doing, but it's just like a fun weekend tournament. And that's all it is. And it is like, yeah, this this is just getting kind of dumb. But when you find that balance of, yeah, it's skill with a little bit of strength and size, like I wish there this was around a little earlier. And as I get older, this is probably something I hope there's leagues of I can play because I'm a guy yeah. that likes to post up. I can shoot. And so, for, and I'm not very particularly quick or athletic. So for me, I'm like, this is perfect. And I know it's not to say you, you, you're not athletic to play in it, but I do feel with enough skill and smarts, you can kind of neutralize that a little bit, a little. Or is that probably? You no, know, I agree. There, there's teams that we've played against where guys are like, man, in the open court yeah. in transition, 
this would be hard to match up with this guy. Yeah. But in smaller areas where you can force them to spots, you can use your hands a little bit more, you can bump, you can push. And also, too, you got to think, over the course of a game, the amount of grabbing and holding and pushing, that's definitely something that tires the defense out. That really tires the offense out. If you're getting hit constantly when you're moving, if that's registering in your brain, because, I mean, me being a guy that shoots, the strategy always with shooters is you got to rough them up. You gotta you gotta put them on their back a little bit. You gotta push them and shove them and yeah. and really bug them so they get out of their comfort zone. Um, when you play against a guy that has a lot of athletic gifts and is awfully quick in in smaller areas, you can give them a little bit more yeah. trouble as opposed to having that whole length of a court exactly. and let them really get ahead of steam and come at you. And also, if you get blown by, it's kind of like, yeah, I get it. But you can still. The funny thing about that is. In 3x3, because of the rules, right when a team scores, the ball is live out of the net to clear behind the two-point line. Mm-hmm. And the other team, once they've done that, it's their offensive possession. So you can blow by me, which yeah. has happened. <laughs> and if I play this smart with my teammate, and this is where chemistry and smarts comes into play, if I get into that gap where a guy goes all the way to the rim and does the five-on-five thing of like, I'm going to bang on somebody's head, yeah. and then I'm going to talk some shit, yeah. That's cool, man. We'll get it out of the net. They'll toss it right to me. I'll hit a two, and that real nice one that you got, I just doubled it up. Exactly. With little to no effort whatsoever as far as ex- exerting high energy and high le- high level of, of fatigue, I've just gotten a two back and real quick. That's super deflating. Yeah. Really deflating, especially when you have guys that come into this that are new, that are taking the five-on-five mentality. When you hit two or three of those, we had a game in Romania we were playing against a real tough team. It was uh, San Juan out of Puerto Rico. They had a really tough guard, really athletic, really quick, could really break you down. Those guys are really physical, right? Very physical. A lot of, lot of trash talking. They had a guy that could shoot. Um, they had a really strong physical guard, and then they had a real big guy. And our strategy was um, we have a guy that if we catch him in the post, um, we want our big guy, Kyle Landry, to seal immediately clear it as fast as possible, throw it right back into Kyle, and he's going to score. Yeah. So that's what we were going with. Um, it meant a hard matchup for Kyle because he was guarding the little guy one-on-one straight up outside on the wing. And this was the five-on-five thing. I got a big, slow guy on me. Not slow, but like bigger and slower than me. Yeah. I'm going to try and break him down, get all the way to the rim, finish over top of him, and then Kyle would clear it, kind of pin the little guy next close to the bucket, and we'd throw it right back into Kyle, and Kyle would score. Yeah. Now, we were staying neck and neck with them in this because this was trading ones for ones. Right. And then uh, I think it was 10 to 9 for them. Kyle tossed it out to me. I hit a two and got fouled. Oh, wow. And that was a big swing because they had we were neck and neck. And it was kind of one of those things where whoever gets on a run here is going to end the game. So 10-9 for San Juan. Kyle cleared it to me. I hit a two, got bumped by their big guy. And hit the two, made the free throw. So now all of a sudden we're up 12-10 and we wound up winning 21-11 because I wound up, because Kyle had, what do we wind up having? Kyle had nine points of our 21. I had 11 of our 21 and Jordan White had one. That's wild. And I think I hit four or five twos because I hit that first one and got fouled and then it just opened up, yeah. and it just went boom, 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 the ga- and the game was done in a minute and a half. The little bit of games I've played are so frustrating when even if it's been like you need some of the guys to come practice and train against you guys, and we'll be keeping score, and we're 
I don't think people understand how tiring that 10 minutes really is, because especially because it's so physical. Nobody does. And it's just Nobody go, does. go, go. You do not stop. But there have even been games specifically, I remember, we're up like 14, 10, because we've hit a few twos, hit a few ones, and then all of a sudden you hit three threes, and like, oh, shit, now it's 16, 14, and then a second later, the game's over. We're just like, how the fuck did that happen? Yeah. That's a really, cool part it, of it, it's, though. It's a big whirlwind where you're playing and you're – Mistake, turnover, missed shot, blown coverage. 12-second shot clock, so it's not like, all right, let's yep. milk the clock a little bit. I no. think they did a great job of making the rules so that um, it's still basketball, but it's really taken a turn for some strategies and tactics you use on 5-5 five and five just aren't an option now. So I think, I think if the goal was to make it entertaining and go, 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 I think they did a really... Really good job of that. I've been wondering, because you do indoor and outdoor ones, like I said. Sometimes you're being these like really, really cool gyms in uh, like the Philippines or whatever. That's really cool. But then you'll be outside in like uh, Cyprus, and it looks cool. You'll be right on an ocean, and then you as probably the best shooter on the circuit. The wind's so bad that you shoot a three, and immediately it's going. Do you like want to hold like a sign on your jersey that says, like, I swear to God I can shoot the ball? Because if yeah. someone's tuning into the first time they see that, are you, do you think about that at all? Because that's all I would be thinking about. When I first got into it, I thought about it a little bit. Because um, my first major event was in Saskatoon in 2017. Um, and it was so windy. There was one I shot. And you have those shots when you shoot it. You're like, right when it leaves your hand, like, that, that's in for sure. Yeah. And I shot it from the like in between the right wing and the right corner and the minute it le- the second it left my hand I was like oh that's in and the wind picked up and it carried it all the way over the backboard <laughs> and it went behind the basket and I like looked at someone in the crowd and I was like I swear I'm not this crappy <laughs> so like I I couldn't throw it in the ocean at that time like if I was in a boat I wouldn't hit water it was just one of those weekends where it's like this is part of the challenge in 3 on 3 where you are a little bit of, uh, you're just at the mercy of the elements. So yeah. if it's cooking hot, you better make sure you're drinking water, putting on sunscreen, doing all those things. If it's windy, you might have to adjust your strategy a little bit and then hope and pray that when you get an open look, because you still got to take it, mm-hmm. that that wind dies down just enough for the ball to sneak in. Because you got to remember, the other team is dealing with the exact same yeah. things. And... In order to be successful, this has one of those things where it's like, hey, our strategy was this earlier in the day when the weather might have been different, when something might have been different, and all of a sudden we're playing two or three hours later, and it's an entirely different team we're playing, an entirely different strategy because, hey, man, it rained. Yeah. Or, hey, man, it got real windy all of a sudden. Sucks, but you're going to still play. So to give anyone listening a better bit of a better idea the three-on-three world tour works like this, where you play in a variety of tournaments around the world, and you play in these specific tournaments called challengers. If you finish in the top two of a challenger, it links to an event called the Masters. Last year, I think they had 11 Masters events, so there's a ton of different challengers. I think about 25 challengers that you you don't play in all of them. You apply to go to certain ones that connect to specific World Tour Masters games. And that's your season strategy of how can we play in challengers and what can it connect us to? And then where do we go from there? So last year we played in China four times. We played in Malaysia. We played in Mexico. We played in Canada twice in Saskatoon and Montreal. We played in Spokane at, at Hoopfest in uh, Washington. We played in um, Cyprus. We played in 
Oh, boy, where else did we play? We played in Romania. We played in Ljubljana, Slovenia. We played in Taiwan. We played in Japan. We played all over the place. And one of the things that you have to, one, do well is you have to try and do your best to adjust to jet lag, which is almost near impossible because you're flying in on Thursday night. You have a day to kind of get yourself together and practice a little bit, and you're playing Saturday, Sunday, and then you're flying out on Monday. So it's really difficult. But one of the things you pick up really quick is every place is different. Um, we played at the World Cup in the Philippines in 2018. It was indoor because it was monsoon season out there. So you would have been underwater playing. Uh, so we played in the Philippines Arena, which I think our game against the Philippines, we had 10,000 people there. Um, and that's a little bit easier when you're shooting inside. Last year we played in Cyprus in Limassol, and it was beautiful. It was right on this dock right next to the Mediterranean Sea. About as beautiful a location as you could ever ask for. It's the worst shooting location in the history of the universe. It was quite funny to watch. You'd shoot and you're like, oh, it's got no chance. Yeah. No chance. Like, what am I doing? Because I'm I'm going to the rim and I'm blowing layups because the ball's even getting pulled by the wind in a layup. My favorite thing with outside shooting, and I've never experienced anything like that, but even at like hoop it up when we were kids and it would get windy and stuff. So you start you start trying to shoot it with the wind. So if it if it's blowing really hard to right, you shoot left. But then when it dies down and you still do that, so there's no wind and you just airball it by like eight feet. I think that's one of the funniest things. Um what so you were gonna be vying to go to the Olympics this summer. But obviously, with this whole pandemic conspiracy going on, I'm just kidding. I know it's a real <laughs> thing. Um, but with everything going on that has been postponed one year, why don't you get us out of here today and kind of just talking about what has become of Team Edmonton, now Team Canada, and what's gonna what's this next little while going to look like for you guys as you try and get to the Olympics and what is going to be needed for you to get to the Olympics? So the original plan was we were going to play in March in Bangalore, India, and it's a 20-country tournament, and the top three countries from that tournament go to Tokyo. That obviously didn't happen because uh, three days before we were going to leave to go to Serbia to train uh, in leading up to the, the Olympic qualifier, uh, the pandemic had hit a point where it became unsafe to travel abroad. So um, there was a lot of uh, rumors of what was going to happen next, it got shut down to the point where everyone knew, like, you know, this is not getting delayed. This is going to be moved to 2021 once they named that Tokyo Olympics would be 2021 as well. So recently they announced that the uh, qualifying tournament will happen next May in, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Gatz, Austria, which I'm not even going to lie, was a huge relief that we could go play in Austria as opposed to being in India. Not only just because of the travel, but because of the hoops that we had to jump through um, in getting ready to go to India, uh, vaccinations, malaria pills, there was a lot of stuff that was creating some stress for everybody of going down there um, that really went outside, well, we just have to go and play ball. So it got moved to Austria. That happens next May. Um, We've been doing our best to maintain something here so we don't completely fall out of it. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen as far as any sort of competitions before then. Um, we don't really know even what's going to be able to happen leading up to May where it stands right now because there's going to have to be uh, something awfully good on the vaccination uh, vaccination front leading into even really being able to plan a, a proper training strategy leaning into uh, into Austria. 
in order for us to prepare properly, we can practice here. We're very fortunate to have a space. Uh, we've been able to really establish a, a good three-on-three -three culture here with, with introducing it to different players and, and them seeing some of the benefit of playing a faster pace with quicker decisions and, and being able to make these decisions and play under high levels of fatigue. In order for us to prepare properly, though, we, we do have to go outside of Canada. We were in Serbia and Novi Sad, which is kind of like the hub for 3x3 right now. They have the top team in the world out there. They have the second top team in the world out there. So we went out there and, and we trained with them in February, and that's what our plan was, was to go back this past March and continue that. So we're looking to do the same thing, where we'll go out there and prepare and train against those guys, um, get ready that way. Really, at this point, the best we can do is, is just what I said, maintain as best we can, stay healthy, try and continue to work on stuff so that we're not you know, regressing in this time, and then keep pushing toward, towards what's our ultimate goal. I mean, the Olympics is something that is worth waiting another year for. The, the Olympics is, is a lifelong dream for, I think, for anyone who's competed in anything to, to even have a shot. Because you, when you go through athletics and you go through sports, you realize awfully quickly how many good players and good athletes never even get a shot at something like this. So, so I felt the year I went. Yeah, 100%. That year in Sao Paulo was uh, was was magical. It was a fine summer. Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying stay patient, keep grinding. If I, I'm not saying that. So, <laughs> um, what I am saying though is, uh, this is one of those things where you you have to keep your eye on the prize and you have to keep your your uh, your motivations and why you're doing this at the forefront of your mind. Yeah. There have been a lot of ups and downs and doubts and real frustrations of being so close and just never quite getting to it. But we're in a fortunate position. We're, we're still all healthy. We're still in a country that um, at this point has not been really um, put in a dangerous position with COVID. So, you know, there is hope that things yeah. could return to closer resemblance of what normal was in the, you know, sooner than later. Totally. In, the mean in the meantime, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're thinking about May next year. I think that's a great motivating factor in and of itself. Um, so now we just have to try and use the time wisely to make sure that when it gets there, we remember all the bumps along the way, and that should should serve as as much motivation as yeah. anything. Now, jokes aside, it is pretty unbelievable that um, to, to be even in a conversation for going to the Olympics is something I can't even really fathom or grasp. So the fact that you guys are hoping all goes well in terms of the global situation going on right now, are, are getting that done. That's that's pretty unbelievable stuff. And um, I, I, I just think it's really cool for people to hear what this what this game and what this sport really is because as a guy with his storied of a background in five-on-five -five basketball, seeing you make that transition has been really cool and kind of paving the way and leading the way, especially in Canada. It's pretty cool stuff. I know I know we need to get out of here now because part of your training is we got to go throw some discs um, for disc golf and you beat yourself up when you don't get a good 36 holes in. Yeah. So, no, thanks for talking about that, man. I, 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 I even still knowing a little bit more about that the average dude probably still find it very, very interesting. So... Yeah, man, I don't know what else to say. You're sitting right across from me. I'm going to be speaking to you more after this, but really wishing the best and nothing but good luck for you, Landry, Jordan, Jordan Jensen-White, and uh, whoever the fourth dude is. Well, we're, um, you know, I appreciate that. We're, we're moving it forward, and uh, I think it's going, to be, it's going to be positive. You know, we, we put in a lot of time, and it's been a lot of work, and it's been a lot of work and a lot of effort, 
um, because this is so new that we're not following a, a strategy and we're not following a road that's already been paved on how to do this. It's been a lot of having to learn trial by trial by error, but that's also been part of the fun when, when we look at it uh, on what actually has been accomplished to this point is that this is, this is new and you only get to do this for the first time once. So it's, uh, it's going to be fun and it's, it's going to be a, a continued challenge. And I'm, I'm excited and proud that our team is, is from this area of the country, from Absolutely, Alberta. Alberta. That's a special thing for basketball, I think. So totally. Um, yeah, it'll be, we'll, we'll talk more about 3x3. Um, there's other things that we can probably share on of like this different styles, depending on what teams come from what area of the world, like how mm. different areas uh, teach this, what kind of style they've identified as can, what can lead to them being successful, how you train for it that's different from 5-on-5, five because five, you do. When I first started playing this, I still tried to train traditionally like I would for 5-on-5, five five, and it just wasn't working. Yeah. So you really have to adapt to the style of play and, and try and shift your mentality a little bit. So there's a lot of interesting little caveats that, that go along with still playing basketball, but adjusting to the subculture of basketball that you're playing. So, We'll definitely elaborate on that stuff, man, because it's a great sport, and I'm, I'm really excited myself to see how this pans out for all you guys. Um, but uh, for now, we just want to thank everybody for listening. We got, we, got, we got a tea time. We can't be late for it, uh, or the clubhouse is going to kick us out, and I can't have that. Uh, thanks as always, man, and uh, everybody out there, stay safe with everything going on, and we'll see you next week. Thanks as always for listening.